What's up, everybody? Check, 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 check. Check, 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 check. Hey, how's everybody doing tonight? So, as you're all telling each other your favorite thing that happened this week, let me tell you my favorite thing that happened this week. We beat the Bills. Come on, come on. Thank you. I'm so glad some of you are excited. Um, but we, we can't move past, uh, move past that without talking about this real quick. I hope some of you, this is not Florida State, by the way. This is the Atlanta Braves, just so we know. Anybody excited to see a little bit of this tonight? Yeah, y'all are not as excited as I thought you would be. Um, that's okay. I'm super excited. I am praying for the downfall of Bryce Harper. Um, wow, all right, wow, man. So I hope that you guys can pray alongside of me for that. Now, uh, let's jump into our time together tonight. So last week, we went on our college camping trip. I'm glad. Okay, the excitement level is coming up. That's good. That's what we like to hear. Um, so camping trip, it was awesome. Like, great campfire conversations, um, roasted hot dogs by the fire, s'mores by the fire. Um, it rained a little bit at night, and so those that had the right gear were fine. Not everyone had the right gear, so <laughs> there, was that, there was that. Some people were a little colder and a little soggier than others, but that was okay. Um, one of my favorite things every year about the camping trip is uh, the day that we arrive, we like to go on some different hikes and stuff around the area that we camp at. And the area that we camp at is called the Blue Ridge Parkway. It's basically like mountain scenery as far as you can see. It's beautiful. And I love going on these different hikes and stuff around the area. Well, here's the thing about hikes on, at the Blue Ridge Parkway. You, you go on this hike. You, you get to the top of whatever it is you're hiking. And breathtaking view. And then you go to another hike. And you hike. You get to the top of whatever, you know, you're, you're hiking and Another breathtaking view. But here's what's funny. Every hike that you take in the Blue Ridge Parkway, you're looking at the same thing. Like, it's all the same mountains, but what's happening is you're getting to the top, and you're seeing something, and it looks new to you because you're looking at it from a different angle. And that's kind of where we're going to be going over the next three weeks together in our new series that we're calling Prodigals. Uh, we're going to spend three weeks looking at the same thing, but we're going to spend three weeks looking at the same thing from different angles from different perspectives. Many of you have heard the story of the prodigal son before, uh, but we're going to spend time looking at the prodigal son, maybe from an angle that you've never studied it before. We're going to look at it, at it from three angles over three weeks. We're going to look at it from the lens of the father. We're going to look at it from the lens of the prodigal son next week, and then finally we'll look at it from the lens of the older brother. And uh, if, if what the Lord has taught me uh, over my time studying and getting ready for this series is any indication, uh, I think it's going to be an incredible series. So you're going to want to be here. You're going to want to make sure that you get friends here. Like, I, I think the Lord is going to do some incredible things. And so tonight, uh, we're looking at the story of the prodigal son through the lens of the father. Uh, Luke chapter 15, if you are not uh, already flipping there, Luke chapter 15, we'll start reading uh, about halfway through the chapter in um, verse 11. But before we get there, let me tell you a quick story. So, um, I was a sixth grade student, new to sixth grade, new school, new friend group. You know, I just came out of elementary school, now I'm in middle school, and um, one morning, me and my friends were sitting in the cafeteria, and uh, we're just kind of hanging out together. One of my friends stands up from his seat, walks somewhere else, I don't know what he was doing, but he leaves his seat, and this other kid comes and sits down in my friend's seat. We tell the kid, hey, our friend is sitting there, you can't sit there. 
He's like, whatever, I'll move when he gets back. So my friend comes back. Kid won't move. So my friend pushes the kid. I push the kid. Probably shouldn't have done that. You guys are getting two fight stories in a row week to week, just so you know. I was a really good student, believe it or not. Um, So, uh, yeah, so there we go. You know, fists flying, just me and this kid. Um, You know, we're pushing each other. I think he pulled my hair at one point, but I handled business, okay? I did what I had to do, all right? And we were were good. Well, the real part of the story comes afterwards. We, uh, the fight's broken up. We're marched to the principal's office. I can remember this scene very vividly. I'm sitting in the principal's office across the desk from one of the principals at the school. She looks at me and she says, Logan, we're going to have to call your dad. And I said, I beg that you do anything but that. Uh, Could we call the cops? (laughs) Like, take me. You know, that's a better solution than us calling my dad. I was not looking forward to this, but sure enough, she called my dad, and I remember my dad walking into that office and looking at me, and I looked down on the floor, and he goes and has a discussion with my principal, and then he comes to me, he grabs me, and uh, we leave. Come to find out, uh, the response that I got from my dad was not a response of anger. It was not a response of shame. Uh, He was slightly proud of me, um, because I defended myself. Um, He said, did you throw the first punch? No, sir. Did you throw the first push? No, sir. Okay, awesome. Well, glad you defended yourself, you know, and then we went and hung out the rest of the day. Here's the thing. Like, well, I mean, it's great. Good parenting. Um, Here's the thing. I did not, like, I was terrified of my dad walking in that room because I didn't know his heart. Like, I I had no idea what he was going to walk in that room, say, do. I didn't know his heart, and so it made me, like, terrified to approach him. And I think that this is true of us when it comes to our relationship with God. Many of us are terrified to come to Jesus because we don't really understand his heart. Like, many of us come into rooms like this thinking, like, if we come to Jesus, given all the terrible things that we've done, that his response, his reaction is going to be to like, boom, strike us dead with a lightning bolt right then and there. That his response is going to be to maybe start to make our life more difficult, like to punish us in small ways for the things that we've done wrong. Uh, maybe it's not like coming to Jesus for the first time, but maybe it's coming back to Jesus. Maybe like it's, you've wandered from the Lord. And for you, coming back to Jesus is a terrifying thing, maybe for those reasons that we just mentioned, or, or maybe coming back to the Lord is difficult because you're like, there's no way I can come back to the Lord because of the things that I've done. You don't know his heart. And tonight, we're going to, through studying the prodigal son, we're going to get a picture of the heart of the father. And I believe that when you get a clearer picture of his heart, what's going to happen is that like, you will have no other choice, no other logical response than to come to him. And so um, tonight, I want to give you a little bit of context, and I'll tell you the direction that we're going. Hopefully by now you're in Luke chapter 15, verse 11. At the beginning of Luke chapter 15, basically Jesus is accused by religious leaders of spending too much time around sinners around tax collectors, uh, around other people who, who are sinful. The Pharisees, the religious leaders, they come to Jesus, they accuse him of being around sinners too much. 
And Jesus begins to tell some stories, some what we call parables. They're, they're stories that have like this very important spiritual meaning. He tells a story about a lost sheep. He tells a story about a lost coin. And then, starting in verse 11, he tells a story about a lost son. Tonight, we're going to look at two things. We're going to see the heart of God towards our sin. And we're going to see the response of God towards our repentance. The heart of God towards our sin and the response of God towards our repentance. And we'll start with the heart of God towards our sin. Hopefully you got your Bible. Luke chapter 15, verse 11. And he said, that's Jesus, he said, There was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had took, uh, all, all he had, and took a journey into a far country, and there he squandered his property in reckless living. Now let's stop right there and talk a little bit about what we have seen. Because what we just read is pretty significant. We just might not feel that in our current context and our current culture. See, in this day, for a son to go to a father and ask for his inheritance uh, was a big deal. Because in this day, you did not get your inheritance until the father passes away, until the father dies. And so this younger son goes to his father, and pretty much this message that he's saying is, Dad, I wish you were dead. Like, he wasn't just asking for money. He wasn't just, didn't, didn't just need a little bit of, of help. He was going to his dad, his father, the one that created him, provided for him, raised him, he's looked him in the face and said, it'd be better off if you were dead. Takes that inheritance, uh, it turns it all in, into cash, and he heads off on a journey, and we're later going to see that he spends all that money on what the Bible would call reckless living. Like, here's the thing. This son did not just do something wrong. He, he committed a direct offense to his father. He looks his own father in the eyes. Again, the father that created him, the father that provided for him, that raised him, looks him in the eyes. And he, said, he basically spits in his face. I wish you, like, you'd be better off to me if you were dead. And what does the father do? Like, that's a, that's a really interesting part of this passage, too. Like, if you, if you look, there is no indication of any action from the father. You guys pick up on that? Like, there is one thing, one action that the father takes. It literally says that all the father did, he divided his property between them. So you've got the sin of the son. You've got the response, the reaction of this father, which is really no reaction. The only thing that we're, that we're told is that the father takes his inheritance and divides it among the sons. There's no, like, talking to, like, no, no reasoning with. There's no like, hey, you understand that if you do this, you're not welcome back in this house. There's no bed for you if you walk down this path. There, there is no coming back if you decide to do this. He just lets him go. It's all the father does. And through this, we get a picture into the heart of God towards our sin. A picture into the heart of God towards our sin. A picture of God's heart that many of you may have never seen before. Maybe never considered before. But that picture is this. That God is slow to anger. That he's patient with us. 
He's slow to anger. He's patient with us. Like, I hope that you know, every sin we commit is the equivalent of looking our Heavenly Father in the face, the one that created us, that provided for us, spitting in His face and saying, I'd be better off without you. I know you've given me all these things. I know you've, you've sent your son on my behalf, but I'm better off without you. Every sin that we commit is a direct offense against our Father. But God's heart is, is the same as the heart of the Father that we see in this story. It's not to, like, control us into obedience. God doesn't want a bunch of robots, right? God, like, God, in his goodness, does not, like, control us into obeying him. He doesn't even, like, strike us dead in the moment that we sin, right? He, he also doesn't even, like, punish us in small ways all the time whenever we sin. Like, God's heart is not to do any of those things. It's that he's slow to anger. He's patient with us. Why? Well, in 2 Peter chapter 3, there's an answer to that question. Uh, one of my favorite verses, it says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness but is patient towards you. Not wishing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Why is God patient with you? Why is he slow to anger with all of us? Because his heart is for you. His heart is for you. Here's the thing. God has every right to punish us when we do something that is in direct offense to him. Like, does he not? He has every right to strike us dead the moment that we sin against him. Every right. He could do it, and he would be totally justified. But he doesn't. Like, like his heart is, is for us. He's patient. He's slow to anger. Let's keep reading in verse 14. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. This is the son. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate. And no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. So we see that the son takes all that inheritance that his father gave him. Takes every bit of it. He goes off. He spends it all. Every dime of it on what the Bible calls reckless living. I mean, we can infer all kinds of stuff, but it's worldly pleasures. Spends it all to, to the point that he has not a penny to his name. Like many of you college students, right? Not a penny to your name, so you know it well. Hopefully not the reckless living stuff, though. So, he spends all this money, and he's got nothing. So much so that he's, like, got to take a job as a farmhand to care for and feed pigs. That is not a glorious job today. It's definitely not a glorious job back then. He, he's, like, the lowest of the low, and he finally comes to his senses, and he realized, like, I would be better off with my father, but he starts to have this like internal dialogue with himself. He's like, I would be better off there, but how can I go there? 
Like, how can, I go back, uh, to, how can I go back to my father? He begins to, like, rehearse this response. Kind of like, guys, like, when you take her on the first date, you know, you're like, hey, <clears throat> hey, like, you know, like, how am I going to do this? Like, respond, like, rehearsing the response is what this guy's doing here. Except, it's not, it's, like, very serious, right? It, it's, it's he's trying to negotiate the father taking him back. And we get a picture here, again, into the heart of the father. See, what the son is doing here is he is acknowledging that the father is just. That he is just. That the son does not just expect to roll up to the house, get like a warm welcome, get his old bed back. Like, he does not expect that to happen. He expects to have to do some convincing. Listen, don't take God being slow to anger and patient with you for granted. Don't take it for granted. Because while God, his heart for you is one of love, it is one of patience, understand this, sin deeply grieves the heart of the Father. Like it deeply grieves his heart. It hurts him. Uh, It grieves his heart because he knows that ultimately what sin does is it pushes us further away from him. And he is a just God, and he knows that sin ultimately will have to be punished by separating us from him, even if it means punishing you. Like, he is a just, just father. And here's what we see in this parable. Sin grieves the heart of the father. But get this. It doesn't turn away the heart of the father. Like our sin grieves God's heart, but it doesn't turn his heart away. Like like his heart is for us. Matter of fact, this is where like everything that maybe you know about the heart of God, like I, I might just flip it on its head for a second because check this out. Our sin does not cause God to turn away. It actually causes him to draw closer. Our sin does not cause God to turn away. It doesn't cause him to, to like back up. It doesn't cause him to, to recoil. It actually draws him closer. It stirs his affections for us more. And, and you're, you're probably going, hang on a second. Like Everything that I know about God is that he's holy, that he can't be anywhere near sin. I, I want to reframe the way you think about God's holiness, not, not based on my mind but based on what we see in Scripture. Like, this is one of the most profound mysteries of God's heart, that a perfectly holy God would actually move towards his people in their sin. And this should hopefully change everything about the way that you see God in light of your sin. Picture it like this. Like a parent with a child that has some sort of deadly disease. The parent is not angry at the child. The parent is angry at the disease. And the more that that disease grips the child, the more that the heart of the parent is stirred for the child. Like the deeper that the affections of the parent grows for that child. Your sin, it increases the affection of your father towards you so much that he moves towards you. And please understand, Like, he's not moving towards your sin. He's moving towards you 
in the middle of your sin. His heart is for you because you are his. He cannot give you up. He will not abandon you no matter how badly you've messed up. You're like, okay, where do we see this in scripture? Well, really across the whole thing. But let's, let's look at Hosea chapter 11 real quick, and we'll jump back into the prodigal son. But Hosea chapter 11 is a perfect picture of what God does throughout so many of the major and minor prophets in Scripture. Like we see this in God uh, so often throughout Scripture. Hosea chapter 11, verse 7, it should be up on the screens. My people are determined to, in ESV, maybe some of your Bibles say, bent on deserting me. My people are, des- are determined to desert me. They call me the most high, but they don't truly honor me. Oh, how can I give you up, Israel? How can I let you go? How can I destroy you like Admar or demolish you like Zeboim? My heart is torn within me and my compassion overflows. I will not unleash my fierce anger. I will not completely destroy Israel for I am God and not a mere mortal. Here it is. I am the Holy One living among you and I will not come to destroy. God's people bent on moving in a direction that is the opposite of God, bent on uh, setting up idols, worshiping false gods, sinning against a holy God, and God says, I am holy. We think that that should say, I am holy, so I will destroy. But what it really reads is, because I am holy, I will not destroy. Because I'm holy, I will not destroy. He's saying, it's because I am different from you. It's because of my holiness that I, it actually causes me to move towards you in the middle of your sin, which is exactly what we see in this story. Verse 20. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion. And ran and embraced him and kissed him. Let's stop right there. While he was still a long way off. That phrase in the Greek, there's not like an official uh, distance attached to that. It's not like, oh, that's half a mile. But that is a phrase mentioned often in the New Testament. Still a long way off. A, A long way off. Here's what you need to know. It's not close. It's not like, you know, from me to the back row. Like, Literally, that phrase is often used to to talk about how far God's people are away from him in their sin. While he was still a long way off. Here's what that means. Like, I don't know how you picture this story in your head. Like, maybe you grew up in Sunday school. You got the little, you know, the cartoons, veggie tales. I don't know how, you know, the cucumber and tomato portray this. Uh, But, like... This is not a picture of the father, like, sitting on the porch of his house in a rocking chair, reading the newspaper... And like every now and then he just kind of peeks over the newspaper, checks and sees if his son's around and goes back to doing what he's doing. He's not like working the garden and every now and then like peeking up from his work. No, while he was still a long way off, the father is moving towards the son. Like the father is seeking, pursuing the son in the middle of his sin. He's pursuing him. He's not, and, and in the same way, Jesus is is not just sitting back and waiting on you to come to him. He's pursuing you. Maybe that's the reason you're sitting here tonight. Maybe you were invited by a friend. Maybe you just stumbled in. But please understand, like, you are not here by accident tonight. You're not. Not a single person. 
You are not here by accident tonight. You're here because Jesus is pursuing you. He doesn't just sit back and wait on us to come to him. In our sin, our sin stirs his affections for us and he moves towards us. And as we see the Father and the Son interact in these next few verses, we're going to see uh, the response of God towards our repentance. I told you two things, the heart of God towards our sin and the response of God towards our repentance. Uh, But as we talk about the response of God towards our repentance, let's not move too quickly past verse 20. Did you guys catch the beginning of verse 20? Uh, It says at the beginning of that verse, uh, talking about the Son, he arose and he came to his Father. You know what that doesn't mention anywhere in that phrase? It does not mention like, hey, uh, he, he stopped and got a shower. He stopped and got cleaned up. Remember, like the last we saw of this kid, he's, work, he's a farmhand working with pigs. He smells terrible. He's probably covered in, in pig stuff, right? Like he is dirty. He arose and he went to his father. Repentance doesn't start with you getting cleaned up ends there. Like in order for you to come to Jesus, you don't have to clean yourself up, get yourself to where you think that like you're, you're worthy of God. You can come to God covered in the very thing that separates you from him. Like God is, is ready pursuing you in the middle of your sin. Repentance doesn't start with getting clean. It ends there. Let's keep on reading through verse 24. It says, he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion. He ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, he's about to go into this, like, this, this like, speech that he's rehearsed, that we saw him rehearsing earlier. Son said to him, father, I have sinned against heaven and before you I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Father didn't even let him finish. Like, there was more to that speech. You guys can go back and read it. The father didn't even let him get to the end of the thing that he had prepared to say. Why? Because when it, when it comes to us coming to the Lord, we are not in charge of justifying ourselves before him. Like, that's not our decision to make. God declaring you not guilty is his decision and it's already been made if you come to him. It's not a decision that's up to you. So, so let's keep reading. The father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let us eat and celebrate for this is my son. He was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. What was the response of the father? towards the repentance of the son? Well, the response, verse 21, I believe, was a response of compassion. Verse 20, father saw him and felt compassion. What's compassion, you might wonder? Well, compassion is being so deeply moved in your heart that you can't help but take action. It's not just like feeling for someone. It's taking action because of what you feel for someone. And that's the heart of the father. He sees his son covered in the thing that separated him uh, from, from his father. And he takes action. What action did he take? What action will, will God take towards us when we come to him? 
Well, the first action that we see is really more something that he didn't do. He did not cast his son out. He didn't cast his son out. Like, he literally, the, the father does not look at the son. He doesn't look at the son and tell him, hey, get lost. You blew it. Like, you're not welcome back here. The father doesn't tell him, like, you, you, you are no longer welcome in my estate. You no longer share our name. No, that's not what he does at all. He welcomes him. There's this promise in John chapter 6 that Jesus spoke. He says in John chapter 6, verse 37, whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. You know, with the few words in that little verse, hopefully you see it on the screens. In the, with the few words in that verse, your best excuse that you could have come up with for not coming to Jesus just got taken away. Like, that is the best excuse you could have come up with. Like, it's not a bad excuse. Hey, if I come to Jesus, he's, he has every right to tell me, no, you're not welcome here because of the things that you've done. Like, that's not a bad excuse. But with that verse, Jesus just took that excuse right out of your hands. Like, you have no excuse. Who, whoever comes to me, I will not cast out. But is that not so often where we run to? Like, we're hesitant to run to Jesus because we don't feel worthy of going to Jesus. Whether that's for the first time, whether that's like we've wandered and, and it's coming back to Jesus, we, we're, we're hesitant to run to him because we don't feel worthy of him. It, like, if he knows everything, and he knows the darkest parts of my heart, he knows the worst things about me, and there's no way that if he knew that, that I could come to him. There's this incredible quote that I read this week by a guy named Dane Ortland, And I, I want to share this quote with you. Hopefully it's um, on the screens tonight, but I'll read it for you. It says this. Fallen, anxious sinners are limitless in their capacity to perceive reasons for Jesus to cast them out. Listen, we are factories of fresh resistances to the love of Christ. We are factories of fresh resistances to the love of Christ. In other words, like we can constantly conceive ways that Jesus should not love us. But Jesus does not love us on our terms. He loves us on his terms. And his heart is for you. Whoever comes to me, I will not, I will never cast out. In the Greek, that's a really interesting phrase. Whoever comes to me, I will not cast out. Like that word not is one of those places in, in Greek. Sometimes Greek will do like double negative to emphasize a point. So really it means like I will certainly never cast you out. Like he puts a lot of emphasis on that phrase. There's a, um, there's a book that uh, was written by a guy named John Bunyan. That's a Puritan, not the lumberjack. The lumberjack is Paul Bunyan. Um, John Bunyan is a Puritan and he wrote this incredible book um, called Come and Welcome to Jesus Christ. And in that book, kind of a really famous part of that book, there's like a, a, a place in it where he goes into this like dialogue between a, a person and Jesus and the trouble that a person has coming to Jesus. And I, I want to read it for you. Like literally, this is, this is mind-blowing. It's a dialogue between a person trying to come to Jesus. But I am a great sinner, say you. I will never cast you out, says Christ. But I'm an old sinner, you say. I'll never cast you out, says Christ. 
But I'm a hard-hearted sinner. I'm a backsliding sinner, says you. I will never cast you out, says Christ. But I've served Satan all my days, says you. I will never cast you out, says Christ. But, but I've sinned against light. I've sinned against mercy. I have no good thing to bring with me, you say. I will never cast you out, says Christ. No, wait, we say, cautiously approaching Jesus. You don't understand, Lord. Like, I have really messed up in all kinds of ways. I know, he responds. You know most of it, sure, Certainly more than what others see, but like there's perversity down inside me that is that it's hidden from everyone. I know it all, says Christ. But I don't know if I can break free of this anytime soon. That's the only kind of person I'm here to help. The burden is heavier and heavier all the time. Then let me carry it, says Christ. Listen to this. You don't get it. My offenses aren't directed towards others. They're against you. Jesus says, then I am the one most suited to forgive them. But the more ugliness in me you discover, the sooner you'll get fed up with me. And Jesus replies, whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. That's crazy. Like, like that is the heart of the Father. God's response to our repentance is and will always be one of compassion, action. And the action is that he will not cast you out, even though he has every right to do so. So what is the action? We'll end here. The action that the father took, hopefully you saw it, he gave his son a robe, put a ring on his finger, gave him sandals. He sent his servants to go and kill the fattened calf. Like he starts to do all these things. What's going on? The father was reminding the son that he belonged to him. That's not like, like the, the party that these people throw. Like that's not, a, that's not a party for a guest. That's a family party. And you see in verse 24, the father reminded the son. He, he says, for this is my son. He was dead and now he's alive. The father reminds the son that the son belonged to him. So, so anytime you come to Jesus for repentance, this is what his response is to you. You are still mine. No matter how far you've run, no matter what the, the horrible things you've done, no matter how low you've sank, Jesus' action that he takes towards you is to put a robe around your shoulders, put a ring on your finger, put sandals on your feet, and say, you are still my son. You are still my daughter. Like your, your identity in me, uh, it, it is not something that can be taken away because of the sin that you committed. This is the response of God towards our repentance. Thinking about that idea, um, you know, Charlie is now three months old. Um, it is crazy. She turned three months on the 10th, so a few days earlier. And uh, one of her favorite things to do now is to stand. Now, she's not super baby. We have to help her, okay? So here's what this looks like is, you know, I kind of like hold out my fingers because her hands right now are about big enough to fit around my pointer finger. And she's got this crazy grip. And she holds on to my fingers and she likes to stand and we kind of bounce. And so uh, she's training for the Olympics and, and all, so we're starting early. Um, but, you know, she, she stands and it, it's so fun for both of us. But I, I, in thinking about this, I thought about that. Because as she 
is standing, like I don't know what's going on in her mind, probably not a whole lot, but she's holding on to me. But it doesn't matter like what happens to her grip. She could let go. She could have a really, really weak grip. Uh, She could just collapse at the knees, which she does often. But what's going on, like, yeah, she's holding on to me. But what's really happening? I'm holding on to her. And that is a picture of what the action that God takes towards you. Like, no matter what you do, no matter if you have a really loose grip on the Lord, you, you try to let go altogether. Like, if you are in Christ, he's the one holding on to you. He, if you come back to him, he will remind you that you are his child. He is holding on to you. You are not holding on to him. So as, as the band comes out tonight, here's the invitation. Some of you, the invitation is to come to Jesus. To come to the Father. Like you know his heart. We've talked about that. His heart is to move towards you. He has a heart of compassion His heart is that, like, his affections are stirred towards you in the middle of your sin. So tonight, the invitation to some of you is to come to Jesus. Some of you tonight, like, you're in the place of the Son. You're in the place of the Son. Like, like tonight, you walked in, and you are covered in the very thing that separates you from God. You came in here tonight covered in sin. No matter, like, it doesn't matter what it is, no matter how great, no matter how small. Tonight, you walked into this room, and you're covered in the thing that separates you from God. And, and I want you to understand this. Like, this is so true that God is perfectly just. He is perfectly just. Like, what that means is that your sin cannot go unpunished, even if it means punishing you by forcing you to spend eternity separated from God in a place called hell. Your sin cannot go unpunished because God is a perfectly just God. But not only is God perfectly just, he's also perfectly loving. He's also perfectly patient. He's also perfectly slow to anger. God is a sinner-loving God. And the very ones who like, deserve his judgment the most are the very ones that he sends his son, Jesus, to make things right. Jesus steps onto the scene, lives 33 perfect years, tempted in the same way that we were, like in every way. Went through sorrow, Uh, went through difficulty, like was tempted to sin, and he endured it all perfectly. Jesus gets up on a cross, and as the rest of the world falls silent, and Jesus goes to breathe his last, he says with his final breath, it is finished. And in that moment, your debt paid. Your punishment canceled. Your sin washed Clean. In that moment, right then and there, the debt that you owe to God for all that you've done, Jesus paid for with his life. But here's the kicker. Three days later, he gets up out of the grave. The crucifixion was the payment, but the resurrection was the receipt. The resurrection is the thing that allows this king to look at us, the broken 
like the, the weary, the, the burnt out from our sin, it allows him to look at us with all power and all authority and say, come to me. I will restore you. I will forgive you. I will wash you clean. I will set you free. I don't care what you have done. I don't care how low you have fallen. I have more grace to give than you have sin to commit. Come to me. That's the invitation for you today. Come to Jesus. And for some of you, the invitation, like, like you've already come to Jesus, you know him, but you've wandered. And so maybe for you tonight, the invitation is to come back to Jesus. He'll remind you that you're still his son, that you're still his daughter, no matter how messed up you think you are, that is his decision to make, and it has already been made. You're not holding on to him, he's holding on to you. So here's what I want to do. Tonight, uh, I don't know what your response is. I don't know if it's come to Jesus for the first time. I don't know if it's to come back to Jesus. Um, But I want to invite us all to stand. We're going to worship together. The worship team is going to lead us. But during this time, I know this is like weird. I know you got people all around you. I'm going to be standing right down front here. Anne Marie, our girls director, will be right down here to the front right. We would love to have a conversation with you about what it looks like for you to come to Jesus or come back to Jesus. And so the worship team is going to lead us. I'm going to pray, and I pray that you would respond as God uh, is leading you to do so. Let me pray. Lord, we love you. God, tonight we've seen a picture of your heart. Lord, we know that, that you move towards us as sinners that your affections are, stored, are, are stirred towards us in the middle of our sin, the very thing that separates us from you. And so tonight, Lord, I pray that you would stir in hearts. We read that, uh, tonight that you pursue, and I pray that you would do that now. Lord, we're about to sing that your love is reckless, that it chases us down, it leaves the 99. And Father, I pray that that would be true tonight, that we would see people come to you and come back to you. It's in your holy and precious name we pray. Amen.